to Daniel chapter 9. As we continue our ongoing study through Daniel this morning, we come to look at all of Daniel chapter 9. But what I want to do is really read just the first half, which is through verse 15, and Daniel's confession of sin before the Lord. And then I'll pray and we'll continue on together. So uh, listen as the Lord does speak to you and now through his perfect word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself as this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we ask that by your Spirit this morning you might help us to hear your word with humility, that our hearts would be humble before you in the very way that we just read of Daniel's heart before you, that we would know your truth, that we would see your Son in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord's people are a praying people. At least we should have a reputation for being a 
praying people. Uh, one old pastor to whom I look uh, understood that the most important day of his ordinary week outside of Sunday was Saturday. Because it was on Saturday that he prepared his heart, readied his mind to preach Christ on the Lord's Day. And so his typical pattern was to visit homes where people were sick, where people were dying, so that by the time he came to preach in the morning and the evening, the next day, he would preach, as he called it, on the brink of eternity. And his Saturdays were so full of these visitations that one of his church members asked him on occasion, hey, he said, do you ever find the day's duties making it difficult to pray on Saturday? And he offered a simple a question in response, one that was clear, one that was sincere. He simply said, well, what would my people do if I didn't pray? And I suppose it's true that if we took that simple rhetorical question and that, that clear confidence that he utters and applied it to our own lives, if someone was to come along to us in the midst of lives that are often busy and ask, in light of your day's ordinary demands and duties, uh, do you find prayer getting pushed out of the way? And how many of us with sincere honesty before the Lord could answer that question in such a way that would sound something like this? Well, no, of course not. For what would my family do if I, I didn't pray? What would my school do if I didn't pray? What would my team, my neighborhood, my, my workplace, what would my, what would my church do if I didn't pray? There's a constancy and fervency that's meant to belong to prayer in the life of God's people, and it's certainly the case in the text before us today in Daniel chapter 9, as once again we find Daniel praying. And kids, you, you might know how the stories so often told from the book of Daniel are stories that underscore something true about Daniel, which is that he's a man of courage, he, he's a man of profound bravery. But what we actually often see throughout Daniel is what seems to fuel, what, what seems to drive and even animate that courage in the Lord, is that he was a man of constant prayer. Uh, there's a quote that was once said about people, what, what that person is on their knees before God, that is what the person is and no more. That if you want to discover who a person truly is before God, just watch them pray. Do they pray? When they pray, what do they say? And certainly when it comes to Daniel, uh, he's a man of constant, fervent devotion in prayer. And in Daniel chapter 9, the text that we're going to see soon enough is full of these vaunted verses at the end that have vexed people throughout the ages. Uh, what we can so often miss is the entire context for what comes at the end. This Daniel's just praying yet again for something related to the Lord's promise and kingdom. Because students, if you've been with us through recent chapters, you, you hopefully remember that the main theme that basically dominates this book is the idea that the kingdoms of the world, they rise and fall, but it's the Lord's kingdom that out, outlasts them all. Now, there's only one kingdom that's enduring and everlasting and eternal. And we're going to get a sense, actually, of that theme this morning as we get to the end, and it speaks something about uh, the direct direction on the timing of the kingdom's arrival this kingdom that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a kingdom, it's timing, that is spoken about as an answer to Daniel's prayer. So all I want you to see along the way in our study this morning is that answer 
to Daniel's prayer. It's no stretch to say what you have before your very eyes this morning is a prayer that brought the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the answer to Daniel's prayer. That's, that's the simple theme I want you to see. And as often chapters go with Daniel, it's kind of got two parts. You first have the prayer, and then you have the answer to the prayer. So I want you to see, first of all, prayer that God hears before we think about the second section, which is prayer that God answers. So as we think about the kind of prayer that God hears, notice again verse 1, as Daniel so often does, he gives us a time stamp for the text. He says that this chapter comes in the first year of Darius, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, students, if you've been paying attention through Daniel to this point, you know that we've met this man before. Darius was king. Famously, perhaps most famously in this book, he was king when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. So what we're doing now is kind of going back in time the way that the book's chronology has worked itself out. We're kind of going to a time lapse back to the days of chapter 6. And children, you might remember, what's, what's the reason that Daniel was offered as dinner to the lions? What was Daniel doing that caused him to be thrown into the lion's den? Well, he wouldn't stop praying. And what's interesting is that if you've ever wanted to know Oh, what Daniel's prayer life would have looked like, this kind of prayer, morning and afternoon and evening, there as he's looking out on Jerusalem, prayer that got everybody exercised, prayer that got everybody somewhat perturbed at Daniel's devotion to Yahweh. Well, what you have here in Daniel chapter 9 is what his prayer would have sounded like. We don't know the exact reason. It's highly possible this is the kind of prayer that actually led to him being thrown into the lion's den. And it's a kind of prayer that begins because he's read something in God's word. Look at verse 2. He says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the Lord's word to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the desolations of Jerusalem come to an end, namely, 70 years. So evidently in his morning Bible reading, he was making his way through the scroll of Jeremiah. Or maybe, as he's in exile, he's looking for something in God's word that gives some degree of hope, some kind of promise about restoration from the exile, a new exodus that's going to return God's people to the promised land. He discovers the key. He discovers the answer in Jeremiah, maybe chapter 25, where it says, 70 years must pass, and then out of Babylon I'm going to bring my people. Chapter 29, verse 11, says almost the exact same thing. Wherever precisely Daniel was reading it in Jeremiah, we know that he says, I have found this promise that after seven decades, God's people in Babylon are going to be restored to the promised land. And you'll see what that simple promise does for Daniel, look at verse 3. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. It's, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Even the image there used about prayer, that it's in prayer that we turn our face to the Lord our God. Some of you parents can remember times when your children were little and they were wanting to communicate something very important to you. Now they'd grab you by the cheeks, wouldn't they? They'd just kind of keep your face there and say, Daddy, listen to me, or Mommy, listen to what I'm saying. It's almost as though Daniel's saying there in prayer, what we do is like we lay hold of God's face and we say, listen to us. If you want to live this week in the light of the Lord's countenance, his face of mercy and grace towards you, you lay hold of him by prayer. You take a promise that he's given to you in his word and you turn it over. 
day after day, hour after hour maybe, laying hold of the Lord's face in prayer. Just a few weeks ago, I was speaking with a colleague, and he was remarking about what he termed prayer book spirituality rising in many a Christian tradition. And what he meant by that is these kind of books that we can often get full of written prayers and use them in our devotional time and use them as, as guides for a life of prayer. And, and certainly there's a, there's a place for such resources. Uh, he rightly was saying, however, that we want to recognize they should have a secondary place to God's prayer book, which is God's word. Because how many of us might see a revolution of sorts in our prayer life if we understood that we could take every promise, every command, every warning, every assurance that we could Use that to take hold of God's face in prayer. So I want you to see four things about this kind of prayer that God hears. The first thing is that we must pray biblically. Pray biblically. Number two, pray humbly. Because you'll see what he does in verse 3 through 6. What Daniel does is he makes confession before the Lord saying, notice verse 5 and 6, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. We've rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. And if you just kind of scan your eyes through the next few verses, you see how this desire in Daniel to confess sin before the Lord just dominates his mind. Every single verse seems to speak about the iniquity, the transgression, the sin that has belonged to the Lord's people's existence. You see verse 7, he says, to the Lord belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Why? Look at the end of verse 7. Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Again, verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Why? The end of verse 8, because we have sinned against you. He says in verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways which he set before us. Skip down to verse 15. He says at the end, this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. One of the great American ministers of the 19th century was a man named Benjamin Morgan Palmer who published a book called Theology of Prayer. And in the section where he talks about confession in prayer, he says that we must confess our sins regularly to the Lord in prayer, taking what he says is the language of the sackcloth is what he talks about and our humility before the Lord. And if you glance back to verse 3, you see that externally speaking, that uh, Daniel is wearing the clothes, sackcloth and ashes, uh, the clothes of humiliation before the Lord. And then in his prayer, verbally, he, he's representing the humiliation of God's people before the Lord. And you need to recognize that, that he's representing the people before the Lord, just as a priest would do throughout the Old Testament. And again, this, this, this prophet in Babylon is very much functioning like a priest for God's people. Because if you know the timing of some of the things that he's talking about, he's not referring to sins that he has actually committed, but because of his represent, representative role before the Lord. He, he's confessing those sins as if, he, as if he was a part of them. That he so closely identifies with God's people that their sin is, as it were, his sin. And you can, of course, tease out that connection in a way that's entirely unhelpful, but at the same time, you can not tease out that connection in a way that's entirely biblical. What do I mean by that? Well, by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, we've been united to the Savior, we've been united to one another, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're a part of God's family, and so don't you think that much better when you hear of sin in the church, 
here or far away and race to point a finger in judgment. What would be much better, wouldn't it, is bowing the knees before the Lord in prayer, offering an intercession and petition for the Lord's mercy and grace to come upon his people who are so often full of sin. It's absolutely necessary that God's people be familiar with confession, humbly praying before the Lord. Because have you ever noticed before that what the Bible tells us is true about God's people is they're not less wicked than other people in the world. But by God's grace, we just know that our wickedness deserves God's judgment. We know that we must confess our sin because we know that as the Bible declares to us, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So when you walk into a church that doesn't know what it means to confess sin, when you walk into a people that aren't familiar with humility before the Lord in prayer, what you've walked into is a church that's actually much sicker than it realizes. So don't you know that the church is the only assembly in the world that gathers to confess sin? So he prays biblically. He prays humbly. Quickly, number three, he prays covenantally. Look at verse 11. He says, all, trans- all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Again, he knows his Bible well enough. He knows that the covenant curse of exile has fallen upon all of God's people because they've broken the covenant. It was a curse that was promised long ago that if they remained in unrepentance and their disobedience, that God was going to cast them out from the promised land. And so the covenant for, for Daniel's mind informs not just his, his present condition there in Babylon, it certainly informs also his view of God's character. Because look at how the prayer began in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That, that it's God's covenant-making and it's God's covenant-keeping character that helps him understand the situation where he finds himself and actually drives him to pray evermore with confidence before the Lord, knowing that his covenant king is listening. And it's that confidence that's the fourth and final thing I want you to see about Daniel's prayer is that we're meant to pray boldly. We see that in verse 16 through 18. There's this amazing story of revival that you would find in Scottish history in the mid-20th century and happened in, or it began to happen in 1949. You had two older saints in the church, one of whom was blind. They lived next to each other. These 80-year-old women, uh, they saw the state of the church there in Scotland. They were on the island of Lewis, up in kind of the northern area of Scotland in the Hebrides region. And they saw the church in great decline there in the post-World War II era of Scotland. And so one night around 10 p.m., these two older saints, they they took to pray for the Lord to once again visit his people in mercy and and power and grace and kindness. And they prayed through something like 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. And this started a pattern that now belonged to days and days and days of praying for the Lord to pour out his power upon his people. 
And soon enough, the local presbytery found out what was going on. And so what they decided to do is issue a declaration to all the, the churches, the Presbyterian churches there in the Hebrides, that on one Sunday morning, all pastors and ministers were meant to read out this declaration that essentially said things like the Lord would recognize that his people are in this state of a low vital ebb of religion and that they were longing for a spirit of repentance to fill the churches once again, that they might know something of the Lord's power and mercy and grace once again. And sure enough, the Lord answered those prayers. And what broke out is something that's well known as this revival in the Hebrides. It actually continued on that individual island of Lewis for something like three years. And it all began with these bold prayers of a few 80-year-old saints. Here you have a bold prayer from an 80-year-old saint, as best we can tell, named Daniel in Babylon long ago. And listen to verse 16 through 19. And here is boldness as he's confessed the people's sin. Notice verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger, your wrath, turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins, for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, we've come a byword among the nations who are around us. So now listen, children, seemingly command the Lord to respond to his prayer. Verse 17, now therefore... Oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to the pleas for mercy. For your sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes, see our desolations, the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O God, because of your city and your people called by your name. Have you ever been so bold in your prayer to say something like, Lord, listen to me. Pay attention and act. Well, that might sound prideful, but if you understand what Daniel is doing, what is he doing? Lord, you've already promised to do this. And the prophet Ezekiel who says, the people who have dishonored my name, I've kicked them out to exile, but for the sake of my name upon them, I'm going to bring them back. What's Daniel saying? Lord, bring your promises to pass. Sometimes the boldest prayers that we can offer before the Lord are ones that are firmly rooted in Scripture, where God has said, I'm going to do that for you. And, and you see in your life's condition, you say, well, Lord, you haven't done it yet. So pay attention, Lord. Why don't you act for us? What Daniel is seemingly doing in the course of this prayer is saying something simple like, Lord, you've done it before. Now do it again. The people that you've called by your name, revive them and restore them. Some of you, I would imagine, this very week might need that simple prayer. Lord, you've done it before. Do it again. Because you said that you would. So he prays boldly, doesn't he? Covenantally, humbly, and biblically. It's prayer that God hears. And we notice that now as we get to our second section, as we want to pay attention to prayer that God answers. For children, who shows up in verse 21? But this great angel Gabriel. Notice, Gabriel appears and Daniel says, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, he came to me swift in flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, you have to pause right there, actually, at the end of, of verse 21, because Daniel's just said something amazing, and it's easy just to skip over it. He said that, that Gabriel shows up at the time 
of the evening sacrifice. Now, why is that amazing? Well, children uh, or, or Jews offering sacrifices to the Lord in the evening while in exile in Babylon. You just want to shake your head and say, no way. When was the last time Daniel would have seen an evening sacrifice offered to the Lord? Something like 70 years before in Jerusalem, before the exile, and still his entire life's orientation is around what? This morning and evening, this constant communion, this rhythm of enjoying God's presence that his entire life, even well into his 80s, it seems like, is still revolving around this incredible system of religious observance in Old Testament Israel. So I would even ask you to consider if the Lord's providence uh, took you away for a season of time, perhaps even due to sickness or disease, from those regular rhythms of the Lord's worship. Uh, would you find your life still in every way defined by those regular rhythms of the Lord's worship? Such has been your previous, even present devotion to those things. Well, Gabriel's meant to come to give understanding. You see that, don't you? As he says, verse 22, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. He says at the end of verse 23, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So we get to the end of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Uh, these verses that one scholar has called a, a veritable dismal swamp of biblical interpretation. Uh, these are, are verses that some of you might know quite intimately have confounded and confused Christians throughout the ages, actually caused no small amount of disagreement and even division among denominations. What's to deal with the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9? Well, I want to see if I can give you some degree of clarity on what is a text that I think still is full of some noticeable mystery. And you have to see, first of all, something related to the timing of the prophecy that Gabriel brings. Look at verse 24. He simply begins by saying, Daniel, I want you to understand what's going on. You've been confessing sin. You're looking for restoration, the coming of the kingdom. Well, understand this, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Seventy weeks, more literally, it just means seventy sevens. So he's speaking of some time period marked off by seventy sevens. And because the immediate context, clearly at the beginning of this chapter, the word 70, it refers to years, that's probably best to understand this, of course, to be 77s, that refers to some period of years. Now, it could be a literal fulfillment. So 70 times 7, students, if you're decent with math, you know immediately that means 490 years. So Gabriel's thinking about some sort of time period belonging to something stretching out 490 years into the future. And that's possible, and I think quite right in a few different ways. But what you also want to recognize is we, living where we do at this time in which we live, we, we don't recognize like Daniel would have recognized immediately something significant about just the phrase 70 sevens. But I mean, all over the Old Testament, Israelites experience. You don't need to turn there, but if you went back to places in Leviticus, what you would find is, Oftentimes, as God is instructing his people related to things like Sabbath rest, he's using things like sevens, multiples of sevens, for example. 
After seven years, the land was to receive a Sabbath rest. And then they were to look for a year of seven times seven. Forty-nine, because in that following year would be the year of Jubilee. So it's using actual years here that's rich in the Old Testament perspective that speaks about Jubilee. So you're speaking about a tenfold, seven times seven. So 70 times seven, 490 years. That seemed to be actually the simplest way to understand it. Speaking of this time in the future where a Jubilee is going to show up for God's people. This kind of amazing season of deliverance, of freedom, of bringing in, notice what the rest of verse 24 says, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, if, if you have the instincts of a New Testament Christian, you hear things like to bring an end to sin, to atone for transgression, to bring in everlasting righteousness, your instincts probably would say, that sounds a whole lot like what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And that's exactly what this prophecy is actually all about. This is a prayer that brought forth the Lord Jesus. Because you can start that dating somewhere in the early restoration of the nation of Israel, but it's speaking of a time in the future when sin is finally going to be dealt with. This sin that Daniel has been praying for, verse after verse, humble confession after confession, the Lord is saying, Daniel, there's a time coming in the future, this great jubilee that's going to arrive when sin will be once and for all dealt with. Well, he's going to give some more perspective. Notice verse 25 on this timeline of the coming kingdom. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven sevens. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a time of trouble. All I would have you see with some degree of simplicity this morning is verse 25 is speaking about clearly the return of the exiles from Babylon at the, at the call of King Cyrus. It was there that this kind of prophetic timeline begins. They go back to the land. They do rebuild a renewed temple. If you know anything about the story of the book of Nehemiah, they rebuild this temple in the face of much opposition, in the face of much difficulty, in the face of what this calls a troubled time. And it's leading forward to this arrival of an anointed one. You see, verse 26 speaks about that time of his arrival. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, if you have kind of biblical instincts of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, it begins to make sense that this is a prayer that brought forth Jesus because who is the Messiah that Isaiah 53 verse 8 says is going to come as a suffering servant savior who'd be cut off from the land of the living, to atone for sin, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So speaking about this coming of the king, his everlasting kingdom dawning in his person and work, but it's not just thinking about that. It's clearly thinking also about the coming destruction that's going to belong to Jerusalem and its temple. Thus notice the rest of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
Verse 27, further on, talks about it. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It's altogether mysterious. It's altogether enigmatic, I suppose, for many of us. But again, simplicity begins to reign when you realize that Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse, he pulls on Daniel chapter 9, when talks about the coming destruction upon the temple in Jerusalem. That an abomination of desolation, he's going to come. And we know that happened with this Roman general named Titus. We don't have the time this morning for me to outline for you the ways in which he fulfills actually all of these prophetic words. Historically speaking, about the desolations that belong to Jerusalem and its temple. But nevertheless, the desolator came. The prophecy was fulfilled. The Lord says, Daniel, through Gabriel, he says, Daniel, I want you to understand that a time is coming of jubilee for my people and judgment upon Jerusalem. That's the prayer that God answers. Just last night, I was thinking about this story that I've heard a pastor say. He's probably rightly regarded as one of the most influential preachers in the Western world of the last half decade, or last half century. And I've heard him talk about one sermon he gave in his seminary years. He was assigned to preach at the seminary chapel from 2 Samuel chapter 7. You might know that this is a a chapter that's pivotal and vital to the Old Testament story. It's where God makes a covenant uh, with David. And he came that day to preach in front of the students. All the professors and faculty were seated behind him. And he was pretty confident in the structure of his sermon. He said, uh, and I quote, I had a zinger for the start and a zapper for the end. And as he was preaching, the professors behind him, they had a legal sheet of paper on their lap and they were scribbling out feedback and, and things that struck them as he delivered the sermon. And one of the professors that was behind him uh, was his mentor there at the seminary. And so he was particularly eager to receive this mentor's feedback Well, he had taken the mentor, his legal sheet size of paper, folded it up into a small little square, and on the student's way out of the chapel, he handed him this square of paper. And as he got into the hallway and he opened it ever so eagerly to see what was written within, what was scrawled out, just one sentence across the entire paper was a simple warning. You missed the whole point of the passage. And he said it struck him and changed his life. Forever. I tell you that because in my experience, and yours might be like mine, many people come to Daniel 9 and can miss the entire point of the passage. That restoration is needed. That deliverance is desired. That an exodus is coming. And it's found in a Savior whose name is Jesus. So easy is Isn't it for us to get wrapped up in what the precise timing works out that we miss the one who is coming at the end? We miss that good news that God knows sin will be dealt with. We miss the great glorious reality that everlasting righteousness will arrive in an anointed one. So as we close, let me bring out just three final things uh, to help you not miss the essential applications of this passage which is, of course, a prayer that brings forth Jesus Christ. So first, I want you to observe the power of a promise. I want you to observe the power of a promise. Again, it all starts with this promise that he reads in the prophetic work of Jeremiah. 
It's a promise that drives him to his knees. But, but notice, it's not just the power of the promise that, that drives Daniel to prayer. What do you see at the end of chapter 9? but something quite different than what we saw at the end of chapter 8, we saw at the end of chapter 7. We have no information about Daniel being appalled. We have no information about Daniel being overwhelmed. Clearly, it seems like the silence is, at long last, Daniel has understood the great comfort and hope from this promise, a promise of a coming anointed one. And I hope that even in your life, you can recognize that how a simple promise from God's word can give you all the calm, all the comfort in a life that's so often full of chaos. That maybe even this week, what you need to do is take one of those promises in God's word that uniquely applies to your life's experience right now. And like Daniel, find yourself not appalled and overwhelmed by life in the world, but resting in the reality of his sovereign care. Number two, I want you to hear the assurance of God's pleasure. Look again at verse 23. Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You have to believe, don't you, that Daniel would have found some singular form of sustaining comfort in hearing Daniel. I've come to you to help you understand. I've come to you to deliver the answer to your prayer. Daniel, I've come to you because God loves you. I've been making my way through this biography of a recently deceased pastor over the last a few weeks. And in a way that I didn't realize, he had a fantastic relationship with his mother growing up and not, not the greatest relationship with his father. And one of the reasons why is he says he can only recount, or he could only recount, two or three occasions in his entire life. And this man died in his mid-80s. Two or three occasions he could recall of his father ever saying, son, I love you. And you know, don't you, that so many people in our area are looking for love, aren't they? But they're looking for it in all the wrong places. When the gospel that we proclaim, this good news that we preach, is the good news that God who's the king and redeemer and creator of all things, that he loves people like you and me. People that are no better off than anyone else. People that could pray a prayer of confession that sounds just like this. We've acted wickedly, done treacherously against you, sinned by not listening to your word. And the word and spirit can come to you and say, you are loved of the king because you've looked to Jesus. Have you considered before every time that we gather on the Lord's day through the ministry and order of this service, you're hearing in so many different ways the Lord say, I love you. That even in the sacraments, the Lord draws near, brings us to his banqueting table and says, I love you. Jesus even uses language quite like the one we find in verse 4 of this passage, saying that anyone who loves me and keeps my word, he will know the Father's love. And greater love has no man than this than a friend who would lay down his life for his friends. And that's the final thing I want you to see. I want you to rejoice in the mercy of God's provision. I want you to take it away from this morning as completely undeniable the reality that Jesus Christ is the answer to Daniel's prayer. We might disagree on the timing, but certainly we can agree upon the answer is Jesus Christ. That just like people in Daniel's time needed an exodus from the exile, you need an exodus from the exile of your sin. And it's found in an anointed one who came 
Just like people in Daniel's time needed deliverance from the sin and desolation of their life. Well, an anointed one has come. And after all, what is an anointed one? But more literally stated, the Messiah will come. But the New Testament says, the Christ will come. And we have a, a name for that Messiah, don't we? Jesus has come. You want to know the power of a promise? Well, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find the Lord's pleasure resting upon you. And you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find mercy and God's provision for your sin. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us this day to rejoice afresh in the reality of sin that's forgiven in your Son, of atonement that's provided for in our Savior, of everlasting righteousness that comes through our Messiah, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.